0: All right. Um, I apologize once again. We've uh, had interruptions with the baby coming and all. So I'm going to uh, do a quick review to get a set up where we are. Um, and I'm going to speed through a lot of stuff today um, because I want to get through both the uh, epistemology of John Locke and George Berkeley because they fit so well together. I don't want them separated by weeks. Uh, so I think it'll be profitable if we can get them crammed in together. Right now, we're in the midst of what's called modern philosophy. Um, and the general debate, or the gist of the debate, is between the Continental Rationalists, if you remember, and the British Empiricists. We call the Continental Rationalists the Continental Rationalists because they actually studied, worked, and lived on Continental Europe, Germany, and France, and whatnot. And then we have the British Empiricists, the guys from the British Isles, John Locke, George Berkeley, and David Hume. The rationalists, if we remember, are those that believe that mankind are born with innate ideas, that we have the ability to reason about things and think about things and come to conclusions about things without the aid of experience. Now we do use experience, but there are certain things that we can prove a priori or without experience. The British empiricists are going to argue that all knowledge comes via the senses, that without sense experience there is nothing that we could possibly know. Um, The first rationalist that we talked about was Descartes, who is considered the father of modernism. And Descartes, Leibniz, um, these rationalists are system builders. Descartes wanted to create what we talked about as a philosophical mathematics, a picture of the world that could be understood in ethics, morality, politics, the same way that we understand two plus two equals four. And we saw that Descartes, in order to do this, had to destroy his body of knowledge, everything that he had believed up to that point. He took out his systematic doubt, doubted everything, including his senses. He went so far as to even say, I must doubt my own existence, because how do I know that I'm not a brain in a vat, and there's an evil demon that's controlling all this? Or how do I know that the world wasn't just created 15 seconds ago, and this God has implanted me with all my past memories? He says, so we can't know anything for certain, except for one thing, and that was cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore I am. That's Descartes' fundamental starting point. And then we realized with Descartes, the problem with his fundamental starting point was he had to eventually get to a second point, And the second point completely debunked everything he had done to get to his first point. His second point was, we have a clear and distinct idea of a body, and since God's not a deceiver, let me trust my senses. And we talked about Descartes did that because without being able to trust your senses, he couldn't get anywhere further. He could get to the self as a thinking thing, but he couldn't get back out to the world. Leibniz came along, and if you remember last time we talked about Leibniz as being a rationalist who was slightly less rational than the rationalism of Descartes. And does anyone remember why Leibniz was considered less rational than the rationalist Descartes? It's been a while. Yeah, Leibniz starts off with presuppositions, which is something which Descartes certainly wouldn't do, because Descartes says we must know everything with 100% certainty, and those things which we presuppose are things that we presuppose, we don't know with indubitable certainty. So Leibniz presupposed two things. He presupposed the law of sufficient reason, and he presupposed the law of non-contradiction. And if you remember, the purpose of presupposing the law of non-contradiction was so that through that he could garner the other laws of thought, the law of identity, and the law of excluded middle. And once we have the three primary building blocks of logic, he could then use St. Anselm's argument for the existence of God the ontological argument for the existence of God, which is an argument, if you remember back even further, which is 100% a priori, or it's an argument that we don't need experience to believe. So, Leibniz says, if we presuppose the law of non-contradiction, I can get to you the existence of God. I can prove to you the existence of God, and if I prove that God exists, God's not a deceiver, we can trust our senses. So, he's doing the same thing Descartes's doing, but just realizing, let me not paint myself into a corner, let me start from a position that I'm going to eventually have to get to anyways and presuppose a couple things. And Descartes' rational or Leibniz's rationalism, led him to this whole idea of the universe as being a colony of monads, right, in his monadology. And that's a rationalistic position because monads are not something that we can experience. How do we know that monads exist, according to Leibniz? Does anyone remember? How will we know that monads exist? If you remember what a monad was we reason to them right because Leibniz is dealing with corpuscular philosophy of the day the uh, the burgeoning field of atomic chemistry and the chemists were saying well the atom is the smallest piece of matter and Leibniz says well nothing can be the smallest piece of matter because you can always divide that thing in half and that would be smaller you could have half of an atom and then you could have half of that and half of that so whatever is giving physicality to the world cannot itself be physical must be metaphysical, or beyond the physical. And so Leibniz develops his homonetology, which eventually leads to his idea of free will as being volitional, and so on and so forth. Um, At this point, those are the rationalists that we covered. We would normally, in a philosophy course, cover one more rationalist, um, Spinoza. And we won't cover Spinoza right now, because I'm going to finish with the British empiricists, and then touch on Spinoza when we go back and talk about the political philosophy of each and and every one of these individuals. And I think Spinoza fits in best in that regard. So what we have now is we've got the basic tenets of rationalism set out, and we have the first empirical theory of knowledge brought about by John Locke. John Locke was born in 1632, and most of you are probably familiar at least with the name of Locke, where you might have not been familiar with guys like Leibniz and whatnot. Um, But you're probably not familiar with Locke's epistemological work. You're probably more familiar with Locke's political work, right? Most of us have heard of Locke through his treatises on civil government, the first and second treatises on civil government, where we get the famous phrases, all men are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and property, which Jefferson, through others, transformed to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, Um, We know about Locke's political ideas, that you own whatever you apply your labor to, and the American colonists took up that flag and said, King George is not working the land that we work on, so we own this land because we're applying our labor to it. And it was kind of a rallying cry in one of the major movements of helping the colonists break away from Great Britain, or at least rallying them up to do so. Um, We're not going to talk about Locke's political philosophy today, we're going to do that in a few weeks um, in the light of Hobbes' Leviathan. Um, today we're going to focus on the part of Locke that you're probably less familiar with, um, and that's Locke's epistemology. And Locke's epistemology is going to be the first ever empirical theory of knowledge. Right. So a theory of knowledge that is predicated on the idea that all knowledge comes via the senses. So he's doing this as a backlash against the rationalism of Descartes and the rationalism of Leibniz. And Locke's empirical theory of knowledge is given to us in his famous essay concerning human understanding. And the essay was so important philosophically and had such a big impact, nobody calls it the essay concerning human understanding anymore. It's just called The Essay. Anyone in, a, in academia, if you're talking to them, they talk about the essay. They're referring to Locke's essay on human understanding. So what Locke does is Locke is actually, um, was primarily, at least first, he's considered a political philosopher, he's an epistemological philosopher, but as a professional, he was a medical doctor. Um, and Locke wanted to set up a theory of understanding of the world in light of the new scientific findings of the day. And Locke was disinclined to take on The position of the rationalist that we have these innate ideas. Um, The basic thesis of his essay concerning human understanding is set out at the beginning of his work, where he says Inquiring into the original certainty and extent of human knowledge, together with the grounds and degrees of belief, opinion, and assent, we will find out three major things Where do our ideas come from? What are we capable of knowing? How certain is that knowledge? So where do ideas come from? How certain is our knowledge? And what are these ideas actually made of? And Locke said the reason that we do epistemology in the first place, and if you remember, epistemology is the study of what we know, what we have the capability of knowing. He has a great quote, and I don't want to paraphrase it because it won't serve it justice. So I'll read the quote. He says, the reason that we do epistemology, the reason that I set out to do or to write the essay concerning human understanding is this, so that the busy mind of man would then restrict itself to consider only those questions with which it actually is capable of dealing, and would sit down in quiet ignorance of those things which are beyond the reach of its capacities. So why do we do epistemology? So we know the things that we could actually ever know, and then we don't bother trying to study the things which are unknowable. Um, we, why would we waste our time dabbling in the fields of metaphysics and things that, are, that we might have to presuppose something to believe or that we have to somewhat take a metaphysical guess at? Let's focus on the things that we could actually know so that the busy mind of man can focus on those things and restrict our knowledge to those things. So in the essay concerning human understanding, the primary bulk of uh, the work is done in book one and book two. Um, in book one, Locke gives the origin, at least according to him, of our ideas. Where do ideas come from? And Locke firmly believes that all ideas come from sense experience. He firmly believes all ideas come from sense experience. And we've given one of his thought experiments before that he gives in book one. He says, if all ideas did not come via sense experience, then close your eyes and think of a color you have never seen before. And nobody can do it, right? You can't think of a color you've never seen before. He says, close your eyes and think of a shape you've never seen before. Think of a figure you've never seen before. Think of anything you've never seen before. He says you could sit like Descartes in the hot oven for months and months and months and you will never come across anything. You can never think of an idea of something you've never seen before. So all ideas, he says, must come to us by one of two ways. By either sensation or reflection. So every idea that you have in your head, according to Locke, comes one of two ways, sensation or reflection. Now, sensation is simply the data that your eyes pick up from sensing something. I see Ray, I sense him, and that's one way that I get an idea. But another way I can get an idea is I'm driving home today from church, and I think about Ray, and I reflect on him. I say, Well, imagine if Ray wasn't wearing the shirt he was wearing. He was wearing the shirt that Mr. Hammond was wearing. And I can reflect those things, right? Two different sensations I've seen before. I can reflect on them, and I can mix and match them together. Um, That's why, as I've noted before, when you see sci-fi movies and horror movies and movies with aliens and monsters, all of these aliens and monsters somewhat look like a bunch of other things you've ever seen before, right? Aliens somewhat always look like people Right? They might have the head of a person. Maybe they only have one eye, but they have a tail of a lizard and, and, and the mouth of a goat or something different. But it's just a conglomeration of all the things we've ever seen before. Because Locke says it's impossible to come up with anything we've never seen before. Right? So we've broken down all ideas come from sensation or reflection. Sensation or reflection. Sensation is obviously a stronger way to get ideas, a more real way to get ideas. And modern psychology... And uh, neuroscience tells us this, right? When I look at you, I have very, very vivid sensations. But if I leave this room, even just two minutes later, and then I reflect back on what I just saw, my mind will play tricks on me. It won't exactly give me the exact, or maybe not play tricks on me, but it won't recall things exactly as they were. Um, I remember taking a psychology class in school and the professor did a little experiment. We all kind of knew the experiment was going on, um, but we were a little wary. She's sitting in the front of class. I think it's the second day of class, and she goes, I need to go to the bathroom. Steps out of class, and then all of a sudden a s- suspicious person walks in the room, runs up to the front, grabs her purse, steals it, and walks out of the room. And all of us were like, well, should we stop the guy? No, it's a psychology class. He's probably got this plan. So nobody did anything. They let the person steal the purse. And then she came back into the room, and she says, nobody talked to one another. Write down what the man in the room that just left 30 seconds ago was wearing. And everyone in the room wrote down something different, right? So can we sense it, and it's right there, and you can recall it back easily, but when you have to reflect on these things, things start to become a little bit skewed. So our ideas can become a little bit skewed, Locke will say. So Locke's established that we receive ideas from sensation and reflection, but then he says all ideas have certain qualities. Every single idea, all these things in the world, have different qualities. And he says all ideas have either primary qualities or secondary qualities. So... If we take this little podium right here, Locke would say this podium that we're looking at here is a conglomeration of both primary qualities and secondary qualities. He says primary qualities are those things which the thing has in and of itself. What is something, what's a quality of this podium that it has in and of itself? It's metallic. Okay, what else? What is a quality that this has in and of itself? The color, Locke would say a color would be a primary quality of this. It's metallic. It's extension, Locke would say. It's extended in space, right? It's not outside of space. It's number. How many are there? One. Those are primary qualities to that thing. But Locke says all ideas, all things in the world don't only just have primary qualities, they have secondary qualities. This podium has a a smell to it. But is that smell something that's primary to it, something that it has in and of itself? What's unique about the smell of it? What about? It has a sound to it, this podium. That's one of its qualities. But Locke says sound, smell, I could lick it. And it has a taste to it. Those are all qualities of the podium, but they're quite different from its color, its metalness. It's oneness, it's extension in space. What's the difference with the smell of the podium, the the feel of the podium, how it feels to me, the sound of it? Depends on the sensor. Right. The secondary qualities, Locke says, depend on the person that is there sensing that thing. So everything in the world has primary qualities, the thing that it has in and of itself, and then secondary qualities, which are qualities that are dependent on a sensor, right? Somebody has to be there to sense them in order for them to be there. Everyone following so far? No problems with that. Anyone like, nope, don't believe it. We're all fine with that to this point, right? And so Locke, then you get the famous uh, philosophy 101 question. According to Locke, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? What would Locke say? No, it doesn't make a sound, because what? Hearer. Sound is a secondary quality, Locke would say. And sound requires a hearer. This thing does not have sound in it. It has the capability of producing sound in you. right? So all fair and well. The importance of this all really comes to light with what George Berkeley is going to do with the empirical theory of knowledge that Locke has given us. So Locke's theory of knowledge is considered by many, is called the antidote to Descartes, right? It's very anti-Cartesian. Descartes would never trust the senses at all. Descartes, or Descartes would never trust the senses at all. Locke predicates his whole philosophy, his whole epistemology on sense experience. Berkeley comes along, and Berkeley is known as the great... Immaterialist, the great immaterialist. All these guys have nice catchphrase names that you can remember. Descartes, the father of modernism. Leibniz is the great optimist. Locke is considered the antidote to Descartes, and Berkeley, the great immaterialist. Um, yeah, Before we move yeah. Up, sorry, pointing me out. Go ahead. Um, would Locke deny that the tr- when the tree fell, sound waves went out, or, or does? Sound as sound waves hitting the, hitting the sensor of the ear. So the waves can go out, but if there's nobody there to hear them, there's just waves floating into space. We wouldn't deny the sound waves, but he wouldn't have the same technology we'd well, have, have to get to them. The Certainly not in the same sense that we would. Sure, it'd be another, another idea. idea. <laughs> certainly. Well, you're jumping ahead of us. You're going to get to Barclay here. Bar- so Barclay is the great piggybacks on the ideas of Locke. He's an empiricist as well. He believes all knowledge, all ideas must come via the senses. Barclay comes along and, um, well, does anyone know what immaterialism is? We all know what materialism is, right? What's materialism? Well, in the modern conception, you think of materialism as someone that's materialistic, that cares about uh, physical possessions and things like that. But in the philosophical sense, um, materialism is somebody that believes that everything is matter, that the world is matter. There, are no, there is no realm of non-matter. Barclay, as an immaterialist, is going to deny matter completely. He's going to say matter does not exist. Matter does not exist. The world consists of minds and spirits, but there's no realms of molecules, no realms of atoms. There is no physicality to the world. Now, quite a, uh, a large claim to make, and all of you that were on board with Locke have probably all jumped off board now and are not on board with Barclay's immaterialism. Most of you believe that physica- things are physical, that there is matter in the world. But most of you would probably believe that due to a logical fallacy that we'll talk about later called ad lapidum, um, which actually derives from Barclay's philosophy. And ad lapidum simply means appeal to the stone, where an argument seems so absurd, we simply kick it away like a stone, as opposed to actually having a philosophical reason for dealing with the fact that it seems weird that matter couldn't be there. But can you prove that matter exists? Barclay says, I don't think you can. And we're going to talk about how he does this. First of all, Barclay wants to look at these secondary qualities that Locke's talking about. So he's looking at the secondary qualities. And he says, all right, secondary qualities of this podium here, I bite it. And it has a taste, right? All of us would say that taste is something that's not in this podium itself, right? But it's in you, right? Because Mr. Phillips can bite into an avocado and he could say, this tastes disgusting. And I could bite into it and say, this avocado is good. It tastes good. The taste of the avocado is not in the avocado itself, is it? The taste is in you. Or I I have no palate for wine. I haven't developed it. If I drink a wine, I'll say, this wine tastes awful. And a fine wine connoisseur would say, no, no, no. It tastes good. So does the wine itself have the taste? No, it has the ability to produce the taste in you, right? So all of us would say taste is a secondary quality. It depends on you being there. Anyone have a problem with that? Sa- Barclay says, fine. I, I, I tr- Locke says that, I, I'm on board with that. He says, smell is certainly something that's a secondary quality. But some of these primary qualities, Locke, that you're dealing with, I don't necessarily think are primary. And this is where Locke or Barclay starts to make his move away from Locke. Locke would claim that the color of this is a primary quality. The blackness of this podium is in the podium in and of itself. It doesn't depend on you. Barclay says, uh-uh. Color is a secondary color. Color is something that is dependent on the perceiver. And most of you are probably off-board at this point. But Barclay says, let's look at the clouds. You look up at the clouds, and at one time you say the clouds are white. But then later that night you say the clouds are orange, or red, or purple. So what color is the actual cloud, Berkeley would say? Well, he says the objection you're going to get is no, 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 no. The true color is if we can get that cloud in a some sort of a secure domain where it's not affected by outside forces, and then we'd be able to find out what the true color of it is. But Barclay says anytime time we say things like true color, that involves what he calls an unjustified justification. Barclay says, well, if my dog looks at the, uh, the podium up here, well, that'll work for him, but if my dog, the dog looks at this, this nice green tablecloth right here, he's not going to see it as green. Why? Well, because of his eyes, right? The thing that he's using to see that thing relays it back to him as not being that thing. Is the color in that thing, or isn't the color in the dog? Barclay goes even further. He says, if you take a cloth, and Barclay did this, and you take a little swab, and you take Mr. Phillips, if we can call it green, his green shirt there, and we cut a little piece of it off, and we bring it to a laboratory, and we put it under a microscope. And we look at it under a microscope. What color is that green shirt? It's different depending on the magnification. Every magnification you change it to, you see a different color. Because that shirt is not green in and of itself. It's green Depending on the perception you have of it, right? The way that you're perceiving it, where you're perceiving it from, right? You can perceive something from very, very far away and it looks like one color, right? And you get closer and it looks like a different color. Color does not exist, Barclay wants to say. In the world itself, color exists in the individual, right? If somebody has jaundice, right? They see the world with a yellow tint to it. Why? Well, the world's not really yellow. Well, not really yellow because what? You're the sole determiner of what the color is based on the way that your eyes function? No, that color is not in the world. The color is in you. So if we all agree that the smell of the podium is in me, if we believe that the sound of the podium depends on me being there, now we have to believe, according to Barclay, that the color is in you. So we're starting to slowly deteriorate the material world. We're starting to take it away um, and starting to say, wow, that material world truly depends on me. Barclay's famous Latin phrase is essay per kippe. Essay per kippe, which means to be is to be perceived. Existence is dependent on perception. If we weren't looking at something, Barclay would say, that thing would cease to exist. Barclay goes even further onto onto this explanation, and he used a famous example of a cherry. And he says, think about a cherry. Well, if we say color is in us, take away the redness of the cherry. The taste is in us, take away the tartness of the cherry. Softness is in us, right, because the softness depends on, if you drop a cherry on an ant, he might not think it's very soft, right, but you feel it and you say it's soft. So softness is something that's relative to the perceiver, so take away the softness of the cherry, take away the redness of the cherry, take away the tartness of the cherry, which are all dependent on you. What is that cherry in and of itself? Says so it's not much of a thing at all. Barclay's final blow comes when he starts to talk about the size of things and the extension of things. We all could say, all right, Barclay, all fair and well, colors in us, but this podium has an actual size, right? It's a real size, and we can, and, and that is a determined size. And how can we determine that? We measure it, right? We take out a tape measure, and we put it right next to it, and we measure it, and we say, this podium is three feet high. But Barclay says, no, 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 no. It's three feet high from your perception of it right now. What if I take that same ruler, and I measure it from over here? How tall is the podium? Or has anyone ever gone like this and blocked out the sun with their thumb? And you could say, the sun's the size of my thumb. No, you say, no, 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 the real size is what? Well, that's an unjustified justification once again. It's a size, it has a particular size depending on where you are in relation to it. Barclay says, S-A-S per kippy To be is to be perceived. This thing does not have existence apart from a perceiver of it. So Barclay at this point wants to deny Locke's differentiation of primary and secondary qualities he says the world does not come to us in primary and secondary qualities qualities coexist they exist together right because if I say look at my shirt but don't look at the blueness of it but still look at it does everyone look at it look at the shirt don't look at the blueness of it though you can't do that right because the properties coexist and Barclay says if the blueness is in my head the whole thing is in my head this does not exist well, Barclay's got a huge problem on his hands now. Because if he's just proved, which he thinks he has, or at least given a good philosophical argument for, that the world does not physically exist, that matter does not exist, how am I getting all of these ideas? How am I getting all these perceptions? I have a very, very vivid perception of this room right now. Right? If I were to ask any of you to go home and draw this room... It wouldn't be nearly as vivid as it is right now, right? Somehow my mind is making up the image of you and you and you and the pews and the stained glass windows and the lights. That's a very powerful mind I have to be able to create all of this, but not only create it, create it as I simultaneously live in it. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. Has anyone seen the movie Inception? Recent movie Inception. Um I was sitting there, and Inception, the whole thesis of the movie um, is Berkeleyan. And I remember watching it in the theater with my wife, and when it got to this part, and I told her I'm nudging her in the movie theater, I was like, oh, this is Barclay, and she's like, shut up, shut up, just watch the movie. I was like, no, no, this is Barclay's philosophy right here. And if you remember, you said you saw the movie, you remember there's a specific theme, uh, theme in the movie, and uh, basically the overall idea is you got Leonardo DiCaprio and these bunch of different people who wanted to break into people's dreams. And they need to get into their dreams so that they can design a dream world so that they can steal information from these people, more or less. But he says the problem is if you break into someone's dream and you want to design a dream world for them. He's in the cafe this, at this point, Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's talking to the little girl. And he says, what I need you to do is I need you to break into their dream and I need you to create the reality that they're going to be living in while you simultaneously walk through the dream, right? And he draws that little thing on the napkin, and he says, so I need you to be constantly walking through the dream while you're creating it. Well, if you remember, Leo had to go searching around the whole world to find the best student, the smartest mind, somebody that had a mind powerful enough that they could simultaneously walk through a world and create the perceptions that they were going to have in that world. Well, Barclay says, I know from experience... My mind's clearly not powerful enough to give me these perceptions, to simultaneously live through reality. Imagine how hard that would be. You walk out the front doors, and none of this is real, so you have to imagine the car you're getting into as you drive the car. You have to imagine the road signs and everything. Your mind's not powerful enough for that. Well, Barclay's philosophy is very, very deeply tied to his favorite Bible verse, which is Acts 17, 28 through 29, Does anyone know what Acts 17, 28 through 29 says? Acts 17, 28 through 29 says, and I'll paraphrase it, roughly says, God is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. God is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. So Barclay says, my mind is clearly not powerful enough to create all these perceptions that I'm having right now. But yet, I philosophically can't get to the position where I know that matter exists. So everything that I have right now, all these perceptions I'm having of you, must be God giving me these perceptions. God is implanting in my mind all of the perceptions that I have. I live and move through God. Everything I'm doing is a not physical world. It's the perceptions that God has for me. Now, there is some peace that can be taken if you take Barclay's philosophy to its uh, extreme degree, right? If you truly want to believe that the world is not material and you take the Berkeleyan view, every single thing that happens to you is meant to happen because it's a perception that God has for you, right? It's ultimate divine providence, right? God is perceiving and giving you all the perceptions that you could ever have. Now, so Barclay, if we go back to the same famous 101 philosophy class question that Locke asked, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody is there to hear it, according to Barclay, does it make a sound? Barclay says, what forest? There's no forest. If you're not there to perceive the forest, the forest doesn't exist, except if God is perceiving it. God must constantly be perceiving the world at all times, because if God for a second were to gaze away from the world, not care about his creation for a second, not be intimately involved in the ins and outs of everyone's lives, poof, the world wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be there. Now, I challenge you, um, and I'll, I'll, well first I'll give you the analogy of how we got to the uh, fallacy of ad lapidum, and I'll close with this. Um, there was a famous Dr. Johnson at the time of Barclays Day and he had a servant boy that came up to him who had just been introduced to Barclays philosophy in a very um, intro way like I just gave to you. And the servant boy was captivated by this and this was actually what captivated my attention with philosophy when I was an undergrad. I didn't pay attention until we got to Berkeley, and I'm probably sleeping in the back of class and all of a sudden the professor's up there talking about how matter doesn't exist and you're listening like... it's it's, it's weird because you want to say that it exists, but it's very, very difficult to prove it. So the boy, the servant boy, comes to Dr. Johnson, and he comes to him, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson, have you heard of Barclay's immaterialism? And he says, yes, I have. And he goes, and Dr. Johnson, how would you refute him? And he says, I refute him thus. And he kicks a stone and breaks his foot. He's saying, matter is there. Look, it's physically there. But this is why it became a fallacy, right? Because what is he doing in kicking the stone? He has to see the stone to kick it, so the stone depends on his perceiving it. He had to feel the stone to kick it, so he had to perceive it. How do we know the stone was there if he wasn't there to kick it? The stone depends on your perception, right? And Barclay's philosophy, most people just throw it out, but they throw it out with an ad lap at them. No, 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 look, matter's there. Yeah, because you perceived it right there. But how do you know that matter's there? Yeah, Anthony. Yes, he does presuppose. He says the universe is mind and spirit. And he has no problems presupposing things because he's not a rationalist. He has no problem with that. But he says the world exists of nothing but minds and spirits. God is ultimately perceiving all things and God through divine providence works all of our perceptions together in this intertwined net of perceptions. And so no, yes, uh, uh, you're not in a separate world. You're in the same world the world of the perceptions that the omnipotent God has given you to have, and all these perceptions intertwine. Now, does anyone have an answer to reject and prove to me right now that this is physically real? If none of us were to perceive it, would this exist on its own? Why? <laughs> I, I, I was the same as you. <laughs> Yeah, and you're perceiving it when you come back, right? My question is, blue. Mm-hmm. Because of the co- we all have roughly the same cognitive faculties and our eyes are all roughly shaped the same way, right? So other things, if our eyes were shaped a little bit different, or if we were on a different planet, right? Planega talks about this lot, li- Alvin Planega. he says, if the light waves weren't exactly the same way as they were on this planet, we would see things completely different, or our eyes would be useless, we wouldn't be able to see things, right? Because you're seeing this because of waves of light that are coming and hitting your eyes. If those waves traveled in different ways, you wouldn't see this thing the same way. This thing is dependent on that perception of it. Um, so that's all dependent, all uh, secondary. If it wasn't there, not Come again? It has to be there. Yes, but you know that it's there. Why? We're begging the question. We're arguing in a circle here, right? It has to be there because you perceive it, but you only know that it's there to say that because you're perceiving it. Now, I'm not going to actually give you the answer today because the answer is going to break away. You can think about it during the week if you'd like to. The answer is going to come in the philosophy of Kant, um, and it's going to come with um, really, really breaking away from our understanding that we have complete and true and utter access to ultimate reality. And once we disbar that notion, Barclay's philosophy will start to crumble. But it's very, very difficult without understanding Kant to give an answer that's not ad lapidum for why matter actually exists. But we can say from Barclay, if we want to take the one thing, looking at Acts 17, 28, to have that view is a very, very comforting thing, right? That God is giving you all of these perceptions. It's uh, the answer that Kant's going to give is going to be way broader than that. It will encompass a lot of things. But like I said, I'm not going to tip my hat today or tip my hand. Any other questions? A lot of stuff for one day. A lot of stuff. So, yeah, that's your homework for next week. To try to prove to me, without cheating ahead and reading Kant's uh, critique of pure reason, which I'm sure all of you are going to do this week, um, with, to prove to me that matter truly is real. Um, So we'll close in prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity um, to explore um, new ways of thinking and new ways of expanding our minds and new ways of understanding the creation that you have made. Um, We do all agree with Barclay in the sense that we live and move through you um, and that you have preordained what will come to pass um, and there's great comfort to be taken in that. In your name we pray, amen.